The book of Nahum uh, starts with some very strong words. Uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. I wonder, what do you think when you hear those words? What do you think when you hear uh, God described as a God who avenges? A God who is furious? A God who takes vengeance on his enemies? Who reserves wrath for his adversaries? Uh, You might think... I don't like the sound of this God. Uh, He sounds aggressive. He sounds harsh. He sounds like a brutal tyrant. But you might perhaps uh, change your mind when you understand who this prophecy is directed against. You can see in verse 1, it says the burden, that means essentially the prophecy, the message, the message against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishites. This is a prophetic word, a prophetic message given by God through Nahum, the prophet Nahum, to the city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital city of the once great empire of Assyria, which, if you know your history, was a huge empire uh, in the Middle East and stretching westward. Uh, It was uh, one of the greatest empires uh, of this particular time period. And this nation of Assyria, with its capital city of Nineveh, did horrendous things to those they conquered. Uh, You can get a taste of it if you read later on in the book of Nahum in chapter 3 and verse 1. God speaks through Nahum and says, Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. Uh, It's described elsewhere as a city full of plunder, full of deceit. Uh, There's no end to the victims, Nahum tells us. Uh, If you want to have an idea of the way the Assyrians behaved and the way they treated the Jewish people in particular, uh, you can just look at the attack of Hamas on the Jews last week. Uh, I thought about uh, mentioning some of the things that happened last week, but decided it wouldn't be appropriate. I'm sure we've all heard something of some of the things which happened. And those things give us a little sketch of what the Assyrians were like as well, in their brutality, in their vindictiveness, in their cruelty as they conquered the lands surrounding them, and as they conquered or sought to conquer 
the children of Israel as well. They were a cruel, bloodthirsty and evil people, or at least their rulers and their armies were. But before we delve a bit deeper into this chapter, there's something we need to be aware of. Uh, This prophecy of denunciation and judgment on Nineveh comes 150 years, or roughly 150 years, after another message that God had sent to Nineveh. I'm sure you've heard of the prophet Jonah. Uh, He's a more famous prophet than Nahum. And God sent Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, the same city of Nineveh, though a century or more before this book of Nahum was written. And he was told to go and preach against Nineveh and tell them that in 40 days, God is going to destroy Nineveh. But we read in the book of Jonah that Jonah ran in the opposite direction. But he didn't run away because he was scared of the Assyrians. Jonah ran away, as he tells us at the end of the book, because he knew that if he gave this message of warning to Nineveh, and if they repented, then God would forgive them. Because God was a God of mercy, and God was a God of kindness. And Jonah did not want them to repent. Jonah did not want them to be forgiven. And because he knew God was a merciful God, he ran in the opposite direction. Well, if you know the story of Jonah, you know that didn't end well for Jonah. And he eventually was sent back via a fish's belly. And he was vomited back on the land, and eventually he obeyed. And sure enough... He preached the message to Nineveh, and wonderfully, miraculously, the city of Nineveh repented. They turned to God, and God forgave them. God showed them mercy, and Jonah was miserable. He could not fathom how God could show mercy to such an evil nation as the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. Uh, You can perhaps sympathise with his feelings if you imagine a Jew this week. Uh, How eager will they be to forgive soldiers of Hamas? Uh, Think about it yourself. How would you feel if your family had been destroyed and mutilated? Perhaps you can sympathise a little more with Jonah. But isn't that interesting? A few moments ago, we read the opening verses of the book of Nahum. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges, and the Lord avenges and is furious. And we might have been tempted to think, God is harsh. God's a tyrant. But when we put it into perspective, it's when we see God's mercy that we're scandalized and we think, how could God show mercy to such people? How could God show kindness to such evil people? 
Have you ever noticed how it's not possible, it seems, for God to win in our minds? If we're not condemning God as harsh and cruel and vengeful and unforgiving, then we're judging him as being too kind or too forgiving or too merciful. Uh, It happens with Christians as well throughout history. Uh, At certain times in history, uh, Christians have been criticized as being too merciful and too spineless, having no backbone and allowing things which should never be allowed. But at other times, they're criticized for being too harsh and too judgmental. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a famous author of the 20th century, uh, explained it in this way. He said this. He said, suppose we heard about an unknown man who was spoken of by many other men. And suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said this other man was too small. Other people said it was too tall. And others said he was too short. Some objected to his fatness. Others lamented his leanness. Some thought him too dark and some too fair. One explanation would be that this man might be a very odd shape. But there is another explanation. He might be the right shape. In other words, when people criticise God as being either too vengeful, as they read the opening of Nahum, or too merciful, as they read the book of Jonah, it's not God who has the problem. It's we who have the problem. It's not God who is the wrong shape. It's us and our understanding which is the wrong shape. Uh, Jesus said it himself. Do you remember? Uh, We looked at this a few mornings ago uh, when we looked at Luke's gospel. Uh, Do you remember what Jesus said of the Pharisees? Uh, He said to them that John the Baptist came and John the Baptist was fasting and living uh, in the wilderness. And the Pharisees called him crazy and a madman with a demon. But then Jesus came eating and feasting and drinking. And the Pharisees said, oh, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber and a drunkard. And Jesus says to them, in, in, in essence, which way do you want it? They weren't happy either way because the problem wasn't with God and with his messengers. The problem was with their hearts. They didn't love God. And so no matter how God showed himself, they rejected him because they hated him. The reality is, God is a God who is both just and merciful. He's both, not one or the other. Some people want him to be just a God of mercy. Some people want him to be just a God of justice. But when we read the Bible, we see that he is both. And you can see that actually in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of Nahum chapter 1. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power 
and will not at all acquit the wicked. Nahum tells us here that the Lord is slow to anger. He's not like us who, have a, who has a, a short fuse. Something happens, we get angry and we say something we regret. We don't think through what we should say or how we should act. We just respond to a rush of temper and we fly off into a rage. God isn't like that. God is slow to anger. All his decisions are reasoned. There was once a lady who came to the famous, famous preacher, Billy Sunday, and uh, she tried to defend her angry outbursts to him. And she said, there's nothing wrong with me losing my temper. I blow up and then it's all over. And Billy Sunday responded and said, well, so does a shotgun. And look at the damage that leaves behind. That's the problem with our wrath. Our wrath and wrath often springs up uncontrollably and fires off, causing great damage. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is steady. God's wrath is reasoned. God's wrath is slow. He never runs ahead of himself. Everything he does is just and right because his wisdom and power far transcends our own. His knowledge transcends our own. He knows every single situation. We might respond in anger in one, in one way, not realise how it's going to affect someone else over here. But God does everything perfectly. And when he does something, he accomplishes exactly the purpose that he intends to accomplish. Sadly, that's so often not the case with us. We try to do one thing for one reason, and so often we end up doing something else, which we never intended. It's never the case with God. Look at verses, the end of verses 3 onwards. It says, The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. God is in perfect control. God always does exactly as he intends. And his wrath is always reasoned, and it is slow. Because the wonderful thing is, despite the power of God, the immensity of God, God has a heart which leans towards mercy. So many tyrants and dictators of the world uh, may have lots of power, but very few of them have a heart which leans towards kindness, which leans towards mercy. But that's how God is described to us. He has a long fuse. Uh, he would be, if I can put it this way reverently, he's the best defense lawyer you could ever have. 
He's always looking for the mitigating circumstance when we do wrong. He is always absolutely fair. He's not bent on our judgment. He wants to show us mercy. That is the kind of God we have. But read on. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. God wants to show mercy. He looks for ways that he can show mercy and demonstrate his kindness. Nevertheless, he never does it at the expense of his justice. God never is merciful to such an extent that he compromises his justice. He may be slow to anger, but his anger is there nonetheless. His fury will be shown in the end. Just because he is slow to anger doesn't mean that we can simply ignore what he says without consequence because God is a God who will by no means acquit the guilty. And you could say his fury is worse because it comes in the face of such mercy. We mentioned, didn't we, how God had already rescued Nineveh once. He'd already gone to them through Jonah and had shown them mercy. But now, 150 years later, they had gone right back to their evil practices. So God is right. God is just to come to them now in judgment and come to them now in wrath. He has exhausted his mercy on them. We must always, always keep in mind when we think of God these two aspects. He is kind, he is slow to anger, but he is also a God who will by no means acquit the guilty. He is merciful, but he is just. Being closing, what does this mean? What does this mean for us in practice? What does this mean for us in everyday life? Well, the most obvious way is it uh, explains the cross to us. Uh, the reality that God is a God of mercy, but also a God of just, explains the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, on the cross, Jesus showed more clearly than anywhere else God's justice. Because on the cross, Christ endured the full penalty of God's wrath against sin. And yet also on the cross, God showed his mercy most clearly. If you want to see how just God is, if you want to see how much God hates sin and hates guilt, look at the cross and you can see what it cost Christ to pay for sin. But if you want to see God's mercy, if you want to see his love, if you want to see his kindness, look at the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty instead of us. And on that cross, God's justice 
and his mercy met in one. We can see them both exemplified in Jesus. And what that allows is for God to show us kindness while also withholding justice from us because he spent it all on him. That's the wonder of the gospel. But there's more than that even. Uh, There's more wonders to this reality that God is a God of justice and a God of mercy. Uh, The fact that God is a God of justice means that God is a fortress we can run to. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. And with an overflowing flood he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Do you realise this? If God was a God of all mercy, if God did not have any wrath, if God did not have any justice, he couldn't be a safe fortress. Uh, We might think it'd be wonderful. We might think it'd be wonderful to have a God who always shows mercy, who always shows forgiveness. But in reality, that would be absolutely terrifying. Because what would you do when someone robs you? When someone commits evil against you? Where will you run? Because God will just show mercy. God will just show forgiveness. And there'll be no justice for you. You will be defenseless. You will be open to the attack of whoever wants to abuse you. But no. The Bible says God will not acquit the guilty. So when people commit evil against us, we can run to him. We can run to him safe in the knowledge that God remembers and God knows. He is a strong fortress. We don't need to take justice into our own hands. We can leave it in the safe hands of God. And that's a wonderful place of security. That's a wonderful place of contentment. We don't need to be eaten up with bitterness and an unforgiving spirit because God has it all in hand. But the fact that God is a God of mercy means that if we have committed evil, if we have done evil to others and we feel the weight and the guilt of that on our conscience, then we can still run to God. We can run to him knowing that if we come in repentance and faith, we can receive mercy we can receive forgiveness because he isn't just a God of justice. He is also a God of mercy. Do you see how this means God is a wonderful fortress and refuge for us to hide in precisely because he is both merciful and just. But there's one last warning 
or one last application from this passage. The first one was that God is a fortress, a refuge we can hide in. But the second one is fighting against God is futile. If we think we can fight against God and get away with it, then we are absolutely deluded. Look at verse 6. It says, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. There is nowhere to hide from God. Uh, One of the psalmists says it, uh, If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. There is no place we can escape from God and his justice. The only sensible path is to run to him for his mercy. Look at those solemn words in verse 14. This is God speaking through Nahum. It says, The Lord has given a command concerning you. This is talking to Nineveh. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. I'm not sure there's any stronger words in the Bible. That's how God describes those who continue to resist him. Those who despise his mercy. Those who say, no thanks, I can do it my own way. God says, I will dig your grave, for you are vile. You might say this evening, well, I'm not as bad as the Ninevites. Uh, I haven't committed any atrocities against uh, young children or murdered anyone or done anything like that. And that might be true. And as far as that goes, that is good. But all of us are rebels against God. All of us, if we're not bowing at his feet, are fighting against him. There is no middle ground We are either surrendered to him, running to him for mercy, or we're shaking our puny fists in his face. And if that is you this evening, fighting against God, going your own path and ignoring him, then heed the warning of Nahum. Heed the warning. God will not release the wicked. God will not acquit those who fight against him. He is an avenger. He is a God of justice who will take vengeance on his enemies. But never forget that God is a God of mercy. He's a God of kindness and he welcomes anyone, whoever we are, however long we've resisted, to run to him and accept the forgiveness that he so freely offers. Which will you choose this evening? Uh, Will you choose to fight him or to run to him? Will you accept his justice or will you accept his mercy? 
And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen as our last hymn, number 360. 360. A safe stronghold, our God is still, a trusty shield and weapon. He'll help us clear from all the ill that hath us now overtaken. So let's stand to sing in closing this hymn which reminds us of what a safe stronghold we have in God. We'll stand to sing number 360. <laughs>